Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. So what's happened, what happens in, uh, in churches traditionally is that uh, people get into church and then they pretty much stay in church, most of them, for a long time. And as years progress, what happens is then churches grow accustomed to those people being in church. And we begin to lose um, that desire or that the, the language in which we bring people into our church. We saw um, countless people stand who've been here for 40 years or 30 years plus, and then as we got younger and younger, we started to see some decline in that. Now, other churches might be the complete opposite, and that's great for them. Uh, different, different roles for different churches, Baskin-Robbins, 31 flavors and different, all that can happen. But what can happen if we're not careful with churches with kind of the seasoning that we have is that we forget what it's like to not be part of a church. We forget what it's like to uh, not have this community, not have people who are spurring us on towards the love of Jesus and love of our neighbor. We, we forget what that's like. And then what happens is this. We become really good church people and really lousy Christians. We become really good at playing the church game. I mean, we're good at it. We know that we show up whenever the doors are open, and then whenever they're not open, um, we, we find something else to do. But whenever the doors are open, we're there. We, we know what it's like to be able to talk about the things that we think we know, or at least make people think that we know things that we don't actually know, but we know the words to say to make them think that we know things that we don't actually know. So we practice over and over again. And so what happens, and the longer we're in church, it's not like the doubts and the questions and the confusion goes away for many of us. It's just that we, fit, we reach a point where we're kind of, we've been here too long to ask the questions. And so we're no longer honest about our faith. We're no longer honest about our um, struggles, no longer honest about our bitterness and frustration, no longer honest about the ways that we doubt the goodness of God because we feel like we've grown too much to be able to ask those kinds of questions. Those of you who are parents, um, you know what it's like when you have kids and your kids begin to ask you questions that you feel that you already know the answers to. And it's because you forgot that they're only six. They don't know how to get a driver's license. You have to tell them, they don't know. They don't, they don't know which pedal moves the car. They don't, they don't know why the leaves change colors. They don't know. They don't know why it's called a suicide squeeze in baseball. And the truth is you're not real sure either. Because <laughs> that sounds really morbid. But they don't, they don't know. They don't, they don't know why that guy's called a free agent or, or what that move is called. They don't know. But if you're like me, you catch yourself getting frustrated for no reason, don't you? Like you're mad at your kid for asking a question that he really shouldn't know the answer to. And yet you're frustrated because you think they should be further along than they actually are. So Peter's gonna wrap up this letter and he makes one powerful statement at the end. And I feel like the whole letter is building up to this. It's building up to this moment, this statement he's making, which he's kind of made earlier, but now he's really gonna make it a little more profoundly. And as church people, what happens is we read this and we read a little more um, edge to it than what's actually supposed to be there. Or we read something into it about uh, church attendance and about devotions and about quiet time that actually isn't built into this statement at all. 
So here's what I wanna ask us to do today. I want us to remember what it was like before you became a Christian, before you became part of a church. I want us to be completely honest today about where we are. I don't care if you've been here 50 years at a church, you've been here for 50 years. Let's be honest about the things that we question and doubt. And we have to sift past and get through some ways that we've built up uh, kind of a, a facade of Christianity, which is actually just being a good church person. We gotta tear down that, that high place, tear down that false idol, and let's get into what God has actually called us to do and to be today. So let's read this passage. I'm gonna read these five verses, 14 through 18. I'm gonna put some of it in context, and then we're gonna talk a bit about um, some American church history. Second Peter chapter three, verse 14. Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and these refers back to verse 13, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, because you're waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him, by God, without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in, of these matters. These are some things in them that are hard to understand, amen? Yeah. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. So Peter makes this statement about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but it's all couched in something that we cannot forget. Again, this is couched in what we talked about in chapter one, that God, according to Ecclesiastes chapter three, God has placed eternity into man's heart. That we've all been created, every single one of us who lives and breathes on this planet, we have been uh, given a hole, an eternity-shaped hole inside of our souls. We have eternity placed in our hearts. We know it. We know that things aren't right. Things shouldn't be this way. We know there has to be more to, more to life than this. We, we know that we feel like we're striving towards something, but we don't exactly know what we're striving to, and so we need somebody to tell us what it is that we're actually longing for. This is what Scripture teaches us, that God created us in union with Him. In the, in the garden and at, with Adam and Eve, he created with union with God and sin broke the union. And humanity ever since Genesis chapter three has been trying to get back into union with God. Now, it manifests itself in many different ways. It manifests itself in relationships. It manifests itself in gender identity. It manifests itself in our striving at work. It manifests itself in, in Instagram and TikTok. This, this, this desire to be united with God, to be whole again, it manifests itself in all of our striving. And what Scripture plainly teaches, not as a, not as a hammer, but as a gift, is there is a way to get back to God. There is something that will satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. But what we've done as church people is that we've turned that invitation into a sledgehammer of, on the souls of people far from God. It's an invitation, not a dividing line. It's an invitation. We're all striving for it. And what we know as followers of Jesus, we know how to get back there. We, we know how to find wholeness and restoration again. 
St. Augustine says that you have made us for yourselves, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Without Jesus, we are a restless people. And again, it manifests itself in many, many different ways. So as we study this passage and this entire chapter, this entire book, is not a call to be a good, Christ, a good church person. This is about being who God has called us to be. It's about being united with the creator again. This is what it's about. So let's pick apart this passage. Let's dive in, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. So again, the these is back to 13. Since you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. What, if you're paying attention, you know that we're, what we're living in now must not be how it's supposed to be. This cannot be heaven. This cannot be paradise, how we're living now. And so as followers of Jesus, we are longing for the day that Jesus makes everything right. There is a new heaven and a new earth in which all righteousness dwells. We're, we're longing for that. The readers of this letter would have been in a season of deep persecution and suffering and pain, and even more so probably them than us. They're longing for the day of Christ. And he says, but while you wait for them, be diligent. But he calls them Beloved. So here's what's interesting about Peter. Peter has used the word beloved eight times in first and second Peter, eight different times. Six of those times have been in second Peter. Four of those six times are right here in second Peter chapter three, which tells us something about the heart of Peter. Peter is probably in prison in Rome. Waiting, uh, waiting for the day of his execution. And Peter turns his attention to the people of God, to the people of the church, and he calls them beloved, my dear friends. Remember chapter two, he goes off about false teachers. The end of chapter one, he goes off about false teachers, but this is something different now. This is an appeal of love. This is not an appeal of guilt or shame or power. This is not fire and brimstone and, and slapping the pulpit. This is not shouting and yelling. This is love. As pastors, we can learn something from Peter's pastoral heart here. This is a cry of love for them. This is not guilting them and shaming them into some uh, a church behavior and obedience. This is not what he's doing. This is, this is a cry of love, beloved. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent. This word diligent expresses an idea of urgency. Be diligent, do it now, be urgent. Work with uh, some effort now. Be diligent to be found by him. By who? By Jesus, or by, when he returns, without spot or blemish. And right there is where we lose a lot of us, don't we? There is, there's not a day in my life that Jesus will return and not find me without spot or blemish. Not a day. You'd be lucky to find 10 minutes. It says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. This is pointing to our sanctification. This is pointing to our continued growth as a follower of Jesus. Be diligent, work hard at this. Work out your salvation. Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. Make every effort to pursue purity and holiness. This is what he's saying. And at peace. Because you know what that effort does? You know what that diligence of pursuing holiness does? It creates a peace 
both internally and externally among other people. Make every effort. But notice again, this is not a cry of guilt or shame. So Pastor Jeffrey Wood, and he says this, he says, gratitude, not guilt as motivation, is always God's starting point. Thus, guilt as a motivation leads nowhere. It leads nowhere. Jeffrey Wood is making the point, which I think many of us, if we're church people, can understand. What's been leveraged from pulpits for generations has not been my beloved, it's been you filthy sinner. It's not been uh, my dear friends. It's not been uh, the sheep of this flock. It's been you idiots. How dare you? Don't you realize what God has done for you? How are you gonna continue to live like that? But guilt as a motivation leads us nowhere. And the sad truth, there are some of us in the room today who have been here for 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, who have only been driven by guilt. And so you no longer love this, you just do this. You no longer love following Jesus. You no longer love pursuing holiness. You no longer love the word of God. It's just something that you have to do to get somebody off your back. It's gratitude that is the starting point for each of us. Then verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, speaking of, of the end times and return of Jesus. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can anybody attest to that? Is that true for you? Are there are things in scripture that are hard to understand. I love that Peter's saying that out loud to us. He's not hiding it. There are things in scripture that are hard to understand. Now, for those of you who are Bible nerds here today, there's an important thing that Peter says here at the end of verse 16. It says, there are some things in them, in, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. The false teachers, the scoffers, you know what they run to? They run to the things that are complicated because they can twist the complicated things to make those of us who are ignorant to them think they mean something they don't actually mean. But then Peter calls them the other, or says as they do the other scriptures. Here's what's pretty phenomenal about this statement that Peter is making. Peter is calling Paul's letters for the first time he calls them scripture. He equates the letters of Paul before we have the canon, before we have the entire Bible, before we have it all neatly packaged together, before we've gone through that whole process, Peter calls Paul's letters scripture for the first time. And what he's saying now to the readers of this letter is, hey, whatever Paul has said is just as good as whatever Isaiah said. Whatever Paul has written is just as divinely inspired as whatever David wrote in the Psalms. He's calling them scriptures. But then let's keep going in verse 17. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, knowing what beforehand? Knowing there are some who will twist the complicated portions of scripture. Knowing there are scoffers and false teachers. Take care. Now, this word take care, again, denotes the idea of my beloved, my dear friends. He's saying, be careful. Be careful that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and therefore lose your own stability. Peter's cry to the people hearing this letter 
is not that they be good church people and that they show up whenever the doors are open, that they do their devotions, and that they, they pray the right way and say the right things, listen to the right kinds of music. This is not what he's saying. His fear for them is they would lose their solid footing in the gospel. His fear is that they would be carried away. He's afraid they would lose their stability. So what's the antidote to that? Well, he tells them in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. Now, there are a lot of things we can teach here just out of verse 18 alone, but a few words I wanna focus on. The word grow. The idea of growth denotes the idea that you aren't there yet. That's what growth means. Grow. The tense of this word in the Greek is the idea that it will continue to happen. I don't care if you're in your 70s or your 80s, there's still growth left for you. There's still ways to grow. Growth humbles us. Growth gives you permission to admit that you aren't there yet, that you don't understand that, that you're not sure how a good and loving God could allow these things to happen. Growth gives you permission to be ignorant about certain matters. It gives you permission. I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up um, with the understanding that I had to know everything and be everything to all people so that people would like me and love me. And if I were to ever admit weakness, particularly in the realm of intelligence, I would be, uh, uh, I would be cast out. I would lose friends. I would be considered something different than I am. It happens in, in the realm of athletics for me. It happens in the realm of intelligence and uh, Bible study for me. It happens a lot, particularly as I was growing up and as I was younger. This would happen a lot for me. I don't like admitting weakness. I don't like admitting that I don't know something. And the only way that I would admit that I don't know something is if that created something better for me. If that I could earn your affection by saying, I don't know, if that made you think higher of me, then I would say it. But to actually admit that I really don't know. I don't know. Meredith is in a D group, and she, my wife Meredith, and she's reading through a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament. And then she tells me things and I had this moment where I can be like, yeah, of course I knew that. I'm a pastor, by the way. Did you not know? Like, I, yeah. I've memorized Leviticus. Why are, you, why are you telling me this? But I have to be honest and be like, this is the first I'm hearing of that. I have no idea. I'm, I probably read it or at least was told to read it in college and then I didn't. But I, I mean, I, I wrote the report on it. So there's that. But this idea of growth, listen, it gives you permission to say, I don't know. It gives you permission to say, I don't know that I believe that today. Grow, it gives you permission to be where you are. You can only know what you know. You can't know what you don't know. Again, there's many of us who have been in church so long that we've built up this fake thing that to tear that down would be really hard and humiliating at this point. And I wanna encourage you, tear it down. Tear it down. Stop faking it. Let's build on something that's substantial. Grow, it gives us permission. Grow, he says. Grow in what? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. The idea is grow in your understanding of the grace of God towards you. Grow with that. Progress in it. 
the longer you are a follower of Jesus, the more the grace of God should be amazing to you. Not the less, the more. The more you understand what he has saved you from and the fact that he still loves you knowing everything about you, seeing everything you've done, hearing everything you've said, that we would grow in the grace and secondly, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This idea of knowledge is it's accurate intellectual knowledge. And there's an and there. We have to grow in both. We can't just grow in grace and then forsake knowledge. Neither can we just grow in knowledge and then forsake grace. We are to grow in both. Now, what I love about Peter, particularly here, is that Peter isn't writing this as someone who's on the outside telling everybody else how to do something he's never done. Peter isn't uh, some professor at college who's never actually been a business, who's never actually owned a business telling you how to own a business. This is Peter, a man who has lived growth. This is him. This, of all people that we know in scripture, I think it's, it's God's sovereign plan that we would know a lot about Peter for this very moment. Peter is a man who understands what he's saying here. He is a man who has grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Flip back, if you would, just to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter's letting us know at the end of his life, he's letting us know uh, where he came from and where he is now. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 begins in this way, Simeon or Simon Peter. Which again, doesn't mean a lot to a lot of us, but it should mean things to most of us. First is this, Simon is his given name. That's the name his mama gave him. She had that, that baby names book and she was like, let's do this one. Simon uh, was a fisherman. Simon worked for his father. Simon did everything he could to earn a trade in the world. Because at the age of 13, probably as a good Jewish boy, Simon was told by a rabbi that he wasn't good enough to continue in the Jewish study. At the age of 13, he was told, you're not gonna cut it, buddy. You better go back to fishing. Simon wasn't good enough. Simon never made the cut. Simon couldn't memorize scripture. Uh, Simon fell asleep during sermons. This is who Simon was. Simon was just a boy. And then Simon is called to follow Jesus. This rabbi, this teacher, and he comes upon the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he says, hey, Simon, put down your nets and follow me. And you wanna know why Simon put down his nets and followed him? Because Simon still, 10, 15 years later, still felt like that little boy who wasn't good enough. And now there's a rabbi saying, you are good enough, come with me. And so Peter drops everything and he follows Jesus. And he follows Jesus for three and a half years. In the middle of this journey, Jesus has all of his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And at Caesarea Philippi, there is this cave and the smoke always comes out of this cave. And um, it was the lore, the legend there was that was where what they would call the gates of hell, right there. They believe that in that cave, you can actually get into hell from there. At Caesarea Philippi, where he takes all these teenagers on a field trip is where they would um, perform sexual acts with goats. I wouldn't recommend that to Cody and Micah for our kids, but I'm just saying Jesus took the kids there and he took his disciples there and he has this interaction with them and he says, all right, who do people say that I am? Disciples give some answers and Peter says that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you are right, Peter. 
And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, pointing to that cave, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. From that point forward, now Jesus refers to Simon as Peter, which means rock, small rock. In his very name, from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter is telling us that he was Simon and now he's Peter. That he has grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's not all, right? That's not the end of Peter's story. He didn't just get a new name, he didn't just uh, get a new identity in Jesus and then become some completely different person. Peter was still Peter, he just had a different name. Simon was still Simon, but now he's Peter in following Jesus. And he grows for three and a half years. And he progresses, he's part of the inner circle with Jesus, and he learns a lot, and he has some good moments, and he has some not so good moments, like all of us do. And Peter progresses, and he grows in knowledge and uh, grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has this moment. He's bold, and he's brash, and Jesus says, they're gonna come for me and arrest me, they're gonna crucify me. And Peter says, no way, not, a, not as long as I'm your friend. I will never let that happen to you. And then Jesus says, that's cute, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And so Simon went from Simon to Peter and now he's Satan. So kind of not the growth we thought was gonna happen. <laughs> but he puts him behind and he says, you get behind me. And so then Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is arrested after the last supper, after he washes the disciples' feet. And then Peter again being Peter, be like, no, nah, you can't wash my feet. I'm gonna wash your feet. And Jesus says, I think we've been over this before. I'm gonna wash your feet. Jesus that night gets arrested. Peter pulls out a sword, says, you're not gonna take Jesus. And by sword, I mean like a fishing knife in which you would kind of cut the hook out of a fish. And he goes to attack one of the Roman soldiers with a little tiny knife. And because he's more used to fish than people, he cuts off the guy's ear instead of doing what he's supposed to do. Jesus yells at Peter, rebukes Peter, puts the ear back on the man, you know, like Jesus does. And then, uh, then later that night, Jesus is dragged then to court. And Peter, from a distance, is watching. And he's given the chance three times, given the chance three times to not cower to the persecution. And they say, hey, aren't you, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter says, no, that couldn't have been me. It must have been somebody else. Couldn't have been me. Little servant girl says, hey, aren't, aren't, you, aren't you the one who follows Jesus? Like, no, 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 it couldn't be me. And the third time he's asked again if it's him, and then he cusses and says, there's no way it's me. He says some choice words. And he denies Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. So this growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ isn't always up and to the right, is it? It's a bit like up and down in some hills and valleys, and this is where we find Peter. Jesus is crucified, he raises from the dead. Peter runs with John to the tomb. Uh, Peter's the, the first Peter gets there and looks in because he's crazy. John beat him there, but then Peter goes in the tomb and uh, all kinds of things start to happen. The women go and tell. After they've seen, they go tell Peter and John and everything happens there. John chapter 21, Jesus meets Peter on the beach because Peter said, I'm done with this following Jesus stuff. I'm going back to fishing. I'm, I'm obviously not good enough for this. I'm going back to fishing. Jesus calls Peter in off of the shore and he sits him down and they have a fish breakfast, which sounds disgusting, but I guess it was a thing. So they have breakfast together on the beach and Jesus intentionally asked Peter three times, do you love me? And each time Jesus says the form of the phrase, well then feed my sheep. Peter is restored to ministry and is given his pastoral call into ministry in John chapter 21. This is the rise of Peter. Now, later in Galatians chapter two, which we read about a little bit in Acts, but then Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter two, Peter still has, still has some of the old Simon in him. 
So they're having this meal and there's Gentiles there and there's Jews there, Gentile believers, Jewish believers, and, and Peter's loving it. He's loving hanging out with all these people and eating a meal and having whatever he wants because he had this moment with Jesus. And so, uh, so he's eating and they're having a great meal together. And then what's called the Judaizers, the Jewish uh, people from, from Jerusalem come to where Peter is. And Peter recognizes them and he gets up from the seat with the Gentiles and goes over to the Jewish table. In Galatians chapter two, Paul calls him out and says, remember that? Because I, I had to confront Peter about the way that he was a hypocrite and the things that he was saying and the way that he was living. Which is interesting because if you remember, we just read this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, our beloved brother, Paul. I don't know what kind of confrontations you've had with people, particularly when they call you out for some sort of behavior. And then 20 years later, you call them a beloved brother. You know what that is? That's growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what that is. And so in these two subtle instances, Peter is letting us know, I'm not just a man who learned about this, I'm a man who's lived this. That you would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, with the beloved brother Paul, writes this letter to the churches, struggling under persecution in Roman provinces. So Peter is writing this as a pastor to his beloved, saying, please, please don't lose your footing. Please don't lose your steadfastness. And here's how you don't lose it. You keep growing. Keep growing. Admit where you are and take steps forward. Admit where you are and take steps forward. Admit where you are and take steps forward in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the problem for many of us today, and particularly in the American church in the South, is that we aren't afforded the ability to admit where we are. Scripture is littered with people who are not perfect. And by not perfect, I mean should be on Jerry Springer. That's what I mean. People who have uh, ruined their lives, ruined their marriages, ruined their families, ruined their finances. And these are the people God continues to call and to mold and to shape into leaders of our faith. Particularly for us in the South, we don't feel like we're afforded the ability to say, I am struggling here. I don't think I know that here. Back in the early 1800s, there's a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a lawyer in a, and he was in a Presbyterian church and he was saved later in life and he was a lawyer. And Charles Finney began to lead the uh, revivalistic movement, particularly in from like Virginia on south. Now, what's great about this is that our church was founded in the early 1800s. So while I speak of Charles Finney, I can also say that we were, uh, Sharon Church was along that same kind of path. Charles Finney shows up. He's Presbyterian, uh, which means he believes in the kind of the high church. This is mainline denomination. He, he believes in the, in the proclamation of God's word, deep, deep truth. But what he recognizes is the Presbyterian church isn't seeing converts, isn't seeing people come to know Jesus. Some of that is because of their theology that leads them into believing they don't have to share the gospel, that God will take care of that. And so Finney comes along. But Finney is a lawyer. And Finney has this moment with, with the Lord in the woods and says, hey, if, if, if you are who you say you are, prove it to me. And he describes his experience of feeling like the Holy Spirit just flooded his body with liquid love. And so he, this is where he gives his life to Jesus. He comes back to his law firm. He meets with a guy who he's supposed to represent. And he says, listen, I can no longer plead your case. And I now, I now need to plead the case of Jesus Christ. 
So Charles Finney uh, goes into ministry and he begins leading revivals all over the East Coast, Virginia, all the way uh, south. One commentator says that Finney's messages were less like a pastor's sermon and more like a lawyer's argument. But he institutes what he calls his new methods. And one of them is called the anxious bench. So you see here, this is an artist rendering, obviously, of him on a stage with, a covered, with that covered roof, and in front of him is a bench or a pew. This has been in practice for a long time, particularly in the Methodist church, and they were seeing many people come, become Christians, converted to Christianity, a number of them, just radically growing at this point in American church history. And so Finney says, well, I can take that on the road with me. And so Finney begins to, to share the gospel, but he does it not like a pastor, but as a lawyer. And what lawyers do is lawyers build a case and they present the facts and then they say, so now you choose the right thing. You make the right decision. You, you, you choose the right verdict. And so he would have what's called the anxious bench in which people who were wrestling or feeling convicted would come forward and would sit at this pew or kneel at this bench and then he would have men staged to come then and capitalize on their emotional weakness and try to convert them to Christianity. Now, Finney is a brilliant man and one of the leaders of why the church is how it is here today. But I, don't, I believe this kind of crossed the line. He began to guilt and shame people into salvation. And so what you started to see was Finney using any means possible to get people to come to know Jesus, know Jesus. At one point in a sermon, no one stands up to, share the, to, uh, to say they've received Jesus as savior. And he says, fine, then you all just go to hell. Finney proclaimed the gospel through the means of guilt. And there are many of us today wrestling with this same thing. There's an old adage in the business world that whatever you get them with is what you have to keep them with. For many of us, the way you came to Jesus was through guilt. So now the only leverage the church has over you is guilt. It's not the message of the gospel. We are guilty. We are sinners. But it's his grace that leads us to repentance. It's the forgiveness of our guilt, the removal of our sins that saves us. It's an invitation, not an indictment. There are many of us today who are stuck in church because we were guilted into it. And so what you need to be poked and prodded is that you need to be guilted. You need to be guilted into giving. You need to be guilted into worship. You need to be guilted into church attendance. You need to be uh, guilted into showing up and serving. And for some of you, that's, that's worked for a season. But the problem is many of us have lost our love for Jesus because it's been guilted out of us. So now we no longer come to church because we want to. We come to church because we have to. Guilt is a cheap motivator. I don't know if you drink energy drinks or not. Um, I don't uh, because they scare me. But energy drinks, the whole premise behind an energy drink 
is to stop one chemical that would give you rest and make you tired and increase the caffeine to give you energy. And the more you drink an energy drink, the more, the more you fly, the more you get wings from whatever. And so you, you're doing that. But at some point, at some point, it all stops when your body uh, takes it all in. It just stops and then you crash. So then what do you need to finish your work that day? Well, then you need another energy drink. For some of us, it's not energy drinks, it's coffee, which I feel like is totally fine. Uh, so, <laughs> we, so um, but it's the same thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's sugar, maybe it's uh, just something you need. But the problem with all of these things is they're, they're cheap motivators. They might get you high and give you energy for a season, but when that season's over, you crash hard. Guilt is the same way. Guilt might get you to something, it won't get you through something. So what happens when what was once opportunity becomes obligation? What happens? Those of us who have been married, um, you understand this trajectory, don't you? Because when you started dating, you would do anything for her and with her. You got pedicures because she wanted you to get a pedicure with her. And you did. You, uh, you watched... Hope floats a thousand times because you loved her and that's what you did. You've memorized the notebook. You've, uh, you've gone to these places. You loved him so much, you would do whatever um, just to be with him. You would sit on the couch and pretend to know what was going on in a football game. You would, you would do all of those things because you just wanted to be with that person. And that lasts for a season, then you get engaged and then you have to plan your wedding with her mom and then you do all that and then, then you... You figure out uh, marriage, and so it's good for a season. And then there's these moments where life just goes crazy, doesn't it? Because then you have kids, and then you've got you to make some decisions about how you're going to spend your time and where you're going to go and how you're going to handle finances. And, and over time, what was once an opportunity to be with your spouse now just feels like an obligation. Just feels like an obligation. There's this movie from the early 2000s called The Breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, which I don't recommend you watch. Um, but there's this scene in it where um, they've just, she's just cooked dinner. She's worked all day, prepared dinner for their families and they've eaten. And then she's cleaning up and then Vince Vaughn lays on the couch to play Grand Theft Auto, like real men do. And so he's laying there and she's cleaning up and she comes, Jennifer Aniston comes in or lets the people um, leave, closes the door and just comes over and says, hey, will you just help me do the dishes? It'll take 15 minutes and we'll just knock the dishes out. And he was like, I'm just so tired. I just need to let my food digest and lay here on the couch while I play this game. And she's like, are you serious? So why can't you just do the dishes with me? He's like, because I gotta do this, you can handle that. And she, he makes this statement of, I don't want to do the dishes. Well, she says, I want you to do the dishes. I don't wanna do the dishes. And she says, I want you to want to do the dishes. And Vince Vaughn says, logically, why would I ever want to want to do the dishes? This whole argument goes on. She brings up all kinds of other things like we do in arguments. And she says, and about the ballet, you never take me to the ballet. He's like, I hate the ballet. And she makes this statement, which is so profound. She says, yeah, but the woman you love loves the ballet. When opportunity turns into obligation, this is how we treat the church is how we treat the Lord. We've lost the desire to be with Jesus. And so now we can't even imagine a desire to even be with him. So what do we do? What do we do when that happens? 
Well, first of all, it's not the doing that God wants, it's the desire. It's not the doing. It's not the showing up, it's not the giving, it's not the singing, it's not the standing and the sitting and the reading, it's not that. It's not the doing that God desires, it's the desire he wants. A broken and a contrite heart is what he asks for. He wants the desire. But sometimes we have to reignite the desire through the doing. Just like in marriage, there are seasons when you just feel like I've kind of lost the desire. Just I have a heart, I'm tired, I can't, I can't quite figure it out. And, and we've had seasons like this in our marriage, just deep, dark seasons. And the only way out of it, the only way to reignite desire is to go back to the doing and allow the doing to reignite that desire. There are some of us in the room this morning who you need the desire back. You've lost it. You forgot what it was like to actually want to be with Jesus. You forgot what it was like to actually want to worship him through song. You forgot what it was like to actually want to read your Bible. And I'm not here to guilt you into it. But what I'm saying is, he, does, he wants your desire and sometimes you have to go out to the doing to get to that desire. You need that desire. So what do we do? Well, David says this in Psalm chapter 51, verse 12. He cries out to the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I think there are some of us in the room this morning and this needs to be our prayer for the next week, two weeks, three months. It's just that simple. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me, carry me with a willing spirit. Give me the desire again. If God is who he says that he is, I think he can handle it. There are some of us though, it's the doing we're struggling with. We have all the desire, but we don't have any of the doing. And I just wanna say to you, beloved, grow in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love you, and I don't want you to be carried along by the waves of doctrine. I want you to be steadfastly rooted in truth. So, read the Bible. Find a reading plan on the YouVersion Bible app. Talk to a pastor. Come to church. Find a small group, not out of obligation but because you need to put some doing alongside of your desire. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for a man like Peter who doesn't exist outside of scripture to tell us how to live our lives. It's a man who is just like us. A man who struggled, a man who sinned, a man who betrayed, a man who uh, couldn't figure it out all the time, a man who really wanted to most of the time, but he just got in, in the way of himself. I'm thankful for a man like that who, who 30 years later is this man. Is this man writing this letter to these churches saying these things? It's evidence that we can grow, that we can progress, that we can find more peace with you and with ourselves. God, I, I ask for that for us today. Give us hope through the life of Peter and through his letters. For those of us today who uh, maybe we're making a proclamation uh, to follow you, we wanna be yours. We wanna be saved by you and put back in union with the creator. I, I pray that you uh, meet us in that place. Give us people to talk to. 
affirm our decision, even today. God, I love you. I'm thankful for this gift of, of this church, of this gathering and of your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.